exactly is happening here? Well, the fig tree is a picture of Jerusalem, the place that he just entered. He went expecting to find fruit, and instead, he got none. Why is that? Well, if you read closely along your scripture, God's people have forsaken their purpose. So if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, get that out. You are going to need it. Now, once again, you all know me. I don't like to go all over the place and skip all over the place. If I have passages that are helpful from, from different places in the Bible, I always throw those up in front of everyone, and I do that to be as helpful as possible. That way we all spend more time with our attention where it needs to be and less time flipping through the pages. So today's sermon is called... The shot heard round the world. The shot heard round the world. So where do I get that from? Where does that even come from? Well, I, th- I think you're all familiar with the story, aren't you? You remember that, that date, April 19th, 1775. The shot heard round the world. It was the beginning of the revolution. The beginning of all those blessings that we enjoy today. It was the beginning of war, the beginning of war. And we hear often about this big, beautiful, majestic entry into Jerusalem. And we do hear it as being gentle because Christ was gentle, and he did come riding a beast of burden, a gentle animal. He didn't come in on a big white horse, not a war horse. He did come in on a donkey. But don't get lost in, in that. Because what we tend to do is we see Jesus coming in all quiet and mild, and that is not what happened in the triumphal entry. We need to all get that out of our heads. What happened when Christ entered was Christ declared war. Christ declared war. You say, Jason, I don't know where you're getting that from. That's, that's not in my Bible. Well, if you open up to Matthew 22, let's just take a look at what this says for a second. Again, I'm going to have these verses up in front of everyone, as many of them as I, as I can, but make sure that you please have your Bible there because you're going to need that in Matthew. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go to them, excuse me, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before them and, and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth 
of Galilee. So I have two points for the sermon today. If you have your notes, you will see that they are right there. And the points are, are these. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was declaring war. He was declaring war. On what? Well, first and foremost, he was declaring war on sin. He was declaring war on sin. Secondly, he was declaring war on Satan. And lastly, he was declaring war on death. Friday, there's going to be about a 20-minute presentation that is going to be on YouTube. I'll send everyone a link to that. It's uh, going to be something that I've, I've cooked up and been working on, a dramatic presentation of, um, of those events for Good Friday. So uh, stay tuned for that. I will send you a link, and that is just going to be a video. It's, it's not going to be a live thing, but I am sending it out live, so there will be no problem with connecting to it. So uh, look for that, and we are going to talk about these three things, the war being declared on sin, on Satan, and on death. But point number two, he wasn't just declaring war on sin, Satan, and death. He was doing something else, too, very important. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, make no mistake about it, he was judging his people. You say, Jason, I, I don't really see that. Uh, well, he was judging people of their sin, very important. He was judging people of their misunderstanding of the law. And lastly, he was judging his people on their fruitless lives. Of, of their fruitless lives. So if you will crack open your Bibles, and we are going to be in Matthew and chapter 21, and we are going to look and I'm going to show you where I'm coming up with all this stuff. So it's important you have your copy of God's Word in front of you. So we're going to look and just see some of these things that happened. All right, so first thing, very, very important. Jesus cleanses the temple. Jesus cleanses the temple. Say, well, what does that have to do with war, Jason? What are you talking about there? If you follow along in uh, verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So think about this for just a second. What had God's people done? What had they done? What they had done is very simple they had forsaken reverence. You see, the temple was established as the place where God's presence was known among God's people. If you remember the tabernacle, when the tabernacle was first constructed, God blessed it with his presence, and it was very noticeable. It was meant to be set up in the center of their camp. It was meant to be just a little bit higher than everything else. So no matter where you were around the camp, you would look toward the center, and you would see smoke rising. It would make you think. You would smell the smoke in the air from the sacrifices, and this also would contribute to your thinking. You would also smell the sweet oils that covered everything. These things would all make you think as you're looking of God's presence being among you. Now, each of the elements of the tabernacle were specific and only to be used for service to God. So when you look on this, this tabernacle as being set apart, that's exactly what it was. It was a representation of, for the people to remember, God is here among us. We go here to offer our sacrifices. We go here to, to uh, give our first fruits and our first offerings. This is where we go. We go here to confess our sins. This is where blood is to cover our sins. This is where we go, and it's in the center of camp. 
So when the temple is built by Solomon, it is also to be in the center. And it is to be a spiritual building. Now, I don't say spiritual building like some people take that. It's a physical building with spiritual purposes. You see, within this area, within this building, there are services being given to God, rendered unto God. Services by the Levites, services by the priests, and we know that only one priest is ever able to go in to the, to the Holy of Holies. And uh, so we see this beautiful picture of God's presence right in the center of everyone. And what had they done? What did God's people do? They saw fit to start making a profit off in this place. And I fear and personally uh, condemn churches that do the same thing, that decide what they need to do is turn these places that have been built for worshiping Christ into a place where they can make money. Really not a good thing at all. Not what God desires. These people had forsaken reverence. Now this can be taken to one of two extremes. To the extreme of where we do nothing in the place at all, but sit quietly, or the other extreme, where we do everything in the place. We, we dance, we sing, we, we play loud music, uh, you know, we, we answer our cell phones, uh, you know, we really don't give any reverence or care at all. We set up a table and start selling. Now, can you imagine next Sunday, Christian Life Church, coronavirus over, and some of the members come in here and, well, I have this really neat CD I put together of myself playing music, and I thought I might sell it in the back of the building. And I say, well, Why? And someone else comes in and they say, oh my goodness, I made these donuts and they're wonderful. I want to sell them during the worship service. Why? So before you know it, we have all these people and they're all selling all this stuff in the back. What does that look like? That looks like a loss of reverence, a loss of purpose, because God's house is not to be a place where we make profit. God's house is to be a place of reverence. The temple was to be a place of reverence. Now we know that the Christian Life Church is a building. It's a building. The temple is the church now. So that reverence is to be taken with the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we are all bricks made into this wonderful building. God has chosen to dwell within believers, so it's very, very important we remember that context. So the temple is something very, very, very beautiful, and God's people had forsaken the reverence of it. So notice as we go on, a really, really strange act. Something really weird happens. What is that? Well, Jesus sees this fig tree as they're out walking. And I'm going in secession here. We are following the, the way the book of Matthew is written. And this is the next thing that happens. So he literally gets into Jerusalem, goes in, clears out the temple. How gentle does that seem to you when he's uh, saying that these people that are, that are selling in the marketplace, that what they've turned into a marketplace, when he's calling them uh, robbers? How low and gentle do you think that sounds? What about this fig tree? What's the point of this fig tree? He curses it. Why? Well, let me read to you real quick. Read with me, if you would, verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city... He became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree, fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did this fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, 
You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. What exactly is happening here? Well, the fig tree is a picture of Jerusalem, the place that he just entered. He went expecting to find fruit, and instead he found none. Why is that? Well, if you read closely along to your scripture, God's people had forsaken their purpose. Israel was supposed to be a peculiar people. They were supposed to be different from the rest of the world. Selling goods in the marketplace, lording it over those who are all around them is exactly what the rest of the world does. They were no longer a peculiar or particular people. God's people had forsaken their purpose. Moving right along in, in this book, uh, this is just a, a wonderful, wonderful, uh, awesome section of parables that we see here. And uh, Jesus is actually judging people through these parables. So what we do with these parables in modern America is we take them and we make a coloring sheet out of them. And then we show them to kids and we say, hey, look, shouldn't you be a good little boy or a good little girl just like these people are? Not what Christ had in mind. Okay, so it's good for us to teach children um, through the parables. We really need to make sure that we're actually teaching what the Bible says and what exactly is happening. When Jesus is speaking through parables, Jesus is actually judging, judging people. We see this in Matthew 21 through 22. Those are the sections we're going to be in. I wanted to give this as kind of like a precursor as we're looking through the rest of these sections. So um, let's just take a look at one of those real quick. You all remember this. It was uh, Jesus' parable of the two sons. And this is one of those parables that people kind of trip over sometimes. We're going to read that together. It's in uh, Matthew 21, 18 through 22. It says this, excuse me, 28 through 32. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other, and, uh, the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For God came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. God's people had not wanted to hear God's word. Friends, I tell you this, the church in America today, we are really, really struggling here. We have more copies of the Bible in our household than anyone in history before us. I would ask for a show of hands, how many people have one? How many people have two? I bet there are some people that have over 10 in their house. Maybe some people sick like me have over 20. All right? No, it's not sick. That's good. That's good, right? Uh, we have lots and lots of Bibles. The problem is, what are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? You see, these two sons had received the command of the father. One said he'd do it and then didn't. Later changed his mind. The other said he would do it and then didn't do it. See, which one of these is obedient? God's people had not wanted to hear God's word. 
They showed that with their lives. Very serious judgment comes through this little parable here. Another one, very, very famous. All right, we all know this one quite well. And it's uh, Jesus' parable of the tenants. Following right along in chapter 21. Give that verse for you, those section of verses. It says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned the other. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will have respect for my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, he will, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, God's people had lived fruitless lives. Listen to the answer of the Pharisees. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Why? Because he was. Because as it turns out, as cryptic as parables can be, they're pretty clear to the people who were aimed at. All right? So if the parables were coming at you, it was really difficult for you to deny that. It was really difficult for you to kind of hide that. We tend to do that with the scriptures today. We say, yes, but that was probably made for another time. That was made for back in Jesus' day. That was when we were supposed to do that. Not so much now. We've advanced as a society. Where do we get the right to do that? We don't. We don't. We have no right to toy with God's word. We have no right to say what is for now and what is not. So the response of the Pharisees, all right, and the, the priests, the chief priests, when they hear and perceive that these parables are about them, right on, brothers, you got it. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So God's people had lived fruitless lives. Just like the fig tree, right? Just like the brothers. Moving into chapter 22, we see some interesting parables. We see the parable of uh, the wedding feast. Y'all remember that from Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. So read that with everyone real quick. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. 
Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Notice, God's people had rejected his invitation. They had an invitation from him for a long time. Like, think not back 50 years, not back 100 years, back over 1,000 years. They had generation after generation after generation of God speaking directly to them, calling them to himself. Be my people. You are my bride. You are my children. Come to me. But they had rejected him. When they went away into exile, it was because they hadn't listened to God. They had rejected his invitation. They hadn't listened to his word. It's why when we see they come out, the Pharisees exist because there needed to be someone who would make sure everyone definitely followed the word this time. Notice also a verse that we've, uh, excuse me, a section of verses that we've went through quite a bit here in our congregation, paying taxes to Caesar, following right along in chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. What happened here? What happened? God's people had devalued the image of God. Those people that are coming to ask him questions, they are God's people. They are God's chosen. They are God's elect. They are the Hebrews. They should know the value of the image of God. Yet they come to Jesus with this question, which is more important, to pay taxes or not? Christ says, yes, pay your taxes. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They have devalued the image of God. Notice next, this is so amazing. So amazing. I hope you all see this, this trek that we're on here of, of warfare. We're literally just rolling through the book of Matthew and we're seeing again and again, judgment, war, here it comes. You can't turn away anymore. You can't. You all remember this. These folks that come, they ask questions. And this is the point in the narrative of Christ when the questions are done. The questions are done. Why is that? Why is that? Matthew 22, 41 through 45 says this. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. They were right. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. You see, Christ knew the scriptures. Of course he did, because he breathed them into existence. This is God's word. And when they're confronted by it, their mouths are stopped. Why? Why is it they have nothing to say? Because they didn't know. They didn't know what answers to give. Because God's people had wanted to cover their hypocrisy. Just like you and I chase it back all the way to Adam. It's, it's the woman that you gave me. It's, it's her fault. Chase it back to Eve. It, it's the serpent that you created. It's his fault. We want to cover our hypocrisy. That's what God's people wanted to do. And Christ came, and from the moment that that donkey set the first foot down, set his hoof down for the first time, marching toward Jerusalem, it is on. War is here. So Christ goes in and, and he delivers this judgment and the war isn't finished yet. This entire week, Passion Week, is about the war. It's about all that Christ did. The gloves are off. No more. He's being very direct now. And everyone that hears, notice that they're understanding and they're understanding these religious leaders exactly who he's talking to. The triumphal entry marked the beginning of the road to judgment. Shame, mocking, scorn, and ultimately victory. As I'm going to be reading to everyone on Friday night, Jesus wasn't surprised by what was ahead of him. He's fully engaged. All right, in, in Matthew uh, 20, we read where he is looking ahead to what is coming. He tells his disciples exactly how it's going to happen. He tells them that this is right ahead of us. This is what we're marching into. He knows. He knows about the suffering servant passage and that that was written about him. That on this road, he's going to meet judgment. He's going to meet the judgment. Even as he's judging his people, he is going to take that judgment onto himself. The shame as much shame as we see on the faces of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees and all those who, who should shudder at his coming and who ignored his admonitions. He's going to take that shame on himself. All the mocking that is deserved from those that had abandoned his word and not wanted to listen to what he said and had not really been waiting for his coming that had grown comfortable in the place they lived. Sure, they wanted Rome off their backs, but they wanted the land to be theirs again. When they were looking for the Christ to come, they were looking for a war hero, a religious leader that would come in and push the other king out. He's going to take all that mocking onto himself. The scorn. The scorn that is so rightly deserved by each person that he's speaking to, by each soul that he looks at. He's going to take that on himself. And ultimately... Through this one event, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I, Christian Life Church, you and I, church, we're going to experience the ultimate victory. 
Because when Christ looked ahead, as we'll talk about on Friday, he knew exactly what was coming. He knew what he was walking into. He wasn't going to be surprised by the man whose feet he washes turning on him. He isn't going to be surprised by those people who decide they're going to abandon him at the last moment. He isn't going to be surprised because he knew. He knew what he was marching into. And listen up. He's marching into that for you. And he's marching into that for me. So I pray as we are reflecting on Palm Sunday and the majesty that we always hear about. All right. The majesty is there. But it's not some triumphal moment where all of a sudden everything is going to change. It is a triumphal moment because Christ is taking the first step toward victory. Because Christ is taking the first step toward everyone abandoning him. Christ is taking the first step toward calling everyone out on all the false religion that they thought was going to save them. And Christ offering them the only real hope. Would you join me for a word of prayer and then we're going to sing the doxology together this morning. Heavenly Father, we trust you. We trust you above all else. There's a lot of confusion in our lives today and we pray that you would speak to us from your word in a way that brings clarity such as we've never understood before. God, as some of us have at times been really soft with how we receive your word. Lord, help us, please, to be on this. Help us to surrender to your Holy Spirit and to the urging that you give us to hear you. Lord, we want to be found faithful, faithful in Christ. We want to be found as those that listen to what you say and those that seek ways to apply these truths in every single step that we take. Father, we surrender our lives this morning just as Christ surrenders his life walking into Jerusalem. We surrender ours. You call us to be a living sacrifice, what we've been studying now for all of 2020. And Lord, we want to do that. So as we look forward to the celebration of Palm Sunday, the celebration of step one toward our victory, we turn to you and we give you thanks. What else could we say? We turn to you and we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.